Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 359er. We made a huge blooper. I was the first chef to kind of present my platter with my garnishes and everything. And I had half of what I was supposed to have. And it was just, for me, it was like, not only just am I in the spotlight, am I in front of the coaches and chefs, but I'm sort of on an international spotlight. Um, and it was, it was really embarrassing. Um, but, uh, the cool thing about it, it really, like I said, mistakes are great. And it was like one of my biggest mistakes and it was an incredible learning experience. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, guys, what if I told you I found a menu that's made from paper that's waterproof and rip proof? This thing is basically dirty proof. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, get me some of that. Uh, I hate cleaning menus, but you can have this menu. It's called Terra Slate Menus, guys. You'll get 15% off if you use promotional code UNSTOPPABLE at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Head over to TerraSlatePaper.com. Hey, guys, would you like to know the exact marketing strategy a restaurant owner used to generate over $36,000 in sales from just $400 in Facebook ads? Would you like to know how a bar owner doubled her Tuesday night business in just four weeks for just $50 a week? Go to freebrsbook.com right now and get a copy of the industry's number one selling marketing and promotion book, Bar and Restaurant. Success. This book reveals the step by step marketing plan that created these results so you can apply them in your own business. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Jeff Lizot. Chef Jeff, are you feeling unstoppable today? Eric, you know what? I, I thought about that, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going contrary to unstoppable. I'm going to say I'm going to stop right now. I'm taking 67 minutes to stop with you <laughs> and talk about this wonderful business. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to stop, to be present with us, and to uh, just cover what it is that makes you awesome. And a special shout out to our boy Moses, like you just mentioned, uh, Moses Sabina over at Hot Supper in Portland, Maine, called you out. Here you are. Can't wait to get your story and just a little bit about you. Raised in Simsbury, Connecticut, Jeff Lazat is a Cornell graduate whose culinary resume includes experience at David Boulay's. Uh, is it how do you say that restaurant? Din Danube, like the river. Okay. And Eric Ripper repairs Le Bernardin in New York City. And during two years in France, I'm not even going to try to say these restaurants. I'm like the worst at like pronouncing, like just pronouncing these restaurants. Like you worked at two restaurants. Just go ahead and name those two restaurants for me before I just, just brutalize you know, them. Uh, bistro called uh, La Tupina. 
And the second one is La Bastide Saint Antoine. And thank you for that. In this past year, Chef Jeff has uh, was nominated for a semifinalist nominee, uh, James Beard, Best Chef Northeast. Congratulations on that. And uh, you did this working as executive chef and partner at Present and Company in Connecticut. So uh, obviously, we're just super aerial, scratching the surface about who you are, what you're all about. I can't wait to dive in deeper to learn your story. But first, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. And I love the way that you're opening up with that. Um, I have several to be honest with you, Eric. And I, and I think the one I'd share today is, is I make a lot of mistakes and I'm, you know, that's it. We make mistakes. It's okay to make a mistake. You learn so much from it. It's part of growing. It's part of everyday evolving. And, you know, much like Restaurant Unstoppable is, it's it's all about the next day and moving forward and building off something and getting better. So mistakes are great. Embrace the mistakes. I love it. it. It's so true. And, you know, especially if we're doing things right, we should be making a lot of mistakes. Like, we should be in that area where we don't know what the hell we're doing. Like, where the world is strange to us because we're pushing ourselves to be in that world of uncomfort- uncomfortable places where we're just pushing the envelope and you're yeah. going to make mistakes, but you're learning so much more when you do that. It's so powerful. You have to have, you have to put yourself in an uncomfortable position. As yeah. You, cook. you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with a very com- combustible, uh, t- tangible, sensual product. And, uh, not everyone's going to perceive it the way you are. Mm. Everyone's going to be as comfortable as you are with it. I just heard a, a quote recently, and it's you've got to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And sure. <laughs> I think sure. uh, we're, we're like we're we're kind of shining a light on that concept right now. Sure. But yeah. uh, I mean, hospitality is you, you're putting you're putting all yourself out there. Yep. And and, and when you do that, uh, there's a there's there's a sense of surrender, which is pretty cool. Awesome. So let's go back to where it all started for you. I mean, when did you know that this industry was going to be your career? When did you really start taking steps in your life to get to where you are today? Yeah, I was fortunate enough, I think, to have um, pretty clear vision when I was just about starting high school. And it was time for me to kind of get a job and um, make some money um, on the side of school and sports and everything. And and um, I kind of naturally fell into uh, a dishwashing position at a restaurant here in Simsbury where I grew up um, that actually both my older sisters were working at at the time. And um, that naturally led to uh, working with a little bit of the pizza station there um, and making grinders and that sort of thing. It was a mom and pop it has a sports bar next door um, called Antonio's. And I just thought the world of it. I thought it was really exciting and fun. I would go and work Friday, Saturday nights and work dish. And, I mean, I was a dish dog Friday, Saturday nights in the summer. And, you know, it was hot, sweaty. It was, it was physical. It was exciting. There was swear words going on. There was, uh, there's, there's all these, you know, uh, factors that were part of what I was very quickly conceptualizing this business as. And so the fact that both my sisters were there, the owners, and it was a very familiar um, family-like setting for me that I just naturally took to it. And it was very comfortable. Okay. So 
when did you start getting that ultimate picture of what you wanted to become? Was it during this time? So during high school, uh, I went to public school in Simsbury and I'm very fortunate. We have an excellent, uh, program and, there's actually a vocational culinary program or there was, I should say it's sort of been attritioned out of the program um, now, but um, it was a vocational culinary arts class and it was very similar to what a culinary kind of tech uh, experience would be uh, within uh, a regular public school. So I, I spent two hours out of my day, my junior and senior year working with a chef instructor um, Chef Santino, Tom Santino, who is now retired after 35 years, he created the program there and it was really singular in the fact that uh, it had it had a uh, higher level of culinary education uh, within within a high school and a public school with that. Um, and so we were very early on wearing toques, um, dressed in whites, uh, learning about uh, the brigade system, Escoffier. He was a classically trained French chef, and um, he's the type of guy and type of chef that um, I think I always will have a certain special regard and place for. Uh, he's my old school. Uh, it's what I refer to as old school. What did he do for you, though? Like, what 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 was the influence he had on you exactly? Uh, his influence to myself, and I think it was a class full of about eight or nine of us. And like I said, we did about an hour every day in the class of kind of culinary theory. And then we would essentially go in the, the kitchen and hang out with the lunch ladies and uh, work with them. Um, his primary uh, goal was to teach us mise en place. Okay. The, the, the whole idea of mise en place, working clean. Um, and, and, you know, for every kid in the class, it wasn't the direction that they wanted to do, but it was setting a groundwork for in the future when you are a professional, these are guidelines. These are, a, you know, quote unquote mantra that you can live by. And mm-hmm. that was Misa Foss. So that was, I was really lucky to have that sort of lesson um, chopped into me. Uh, the building early. blocks that you'll need to be successful. I love it. Um, so, okay. So from a young age, it sounds like you kind of found your, your lane. You knew you wanted to be uh, working in kitchens as a chef. When did you, so did you, you went to Cornell, correct? Was that? Correct. Okay. So, I was, I struggled out of high school. I, I, I wanted to go to culinary school. Um, I, I was sort of resolved to do that. Um, fortunately I had enough persuasion and enough time to rethink it and, and, uh, evaluate it and decided to, to try, a you know, four year regular, uh, kind of university route. Um, and by the time I was sort of my senior year and applying for everything, it was kind of a little late. So I, um, I did eventually go to Cornell and I received my degree from Cornell. I did go to UMass for a year prior to that and then transferred to Cornell, uh, UMass Amherst. And I was in the hospitality program at UMass and I transferred directly to the school of hotel management at Cornell in, uh, 2001. Um, my head and my heart was always, you know, I want to be in the kitchen, but this decision was one of the best decisions I made because it, um, it definitely afforded me a lot more of a robust perspective on this industry. Awesome. So I'm curious, uh, you were working as a dishwasher. You started transitioning to more of a, a line cook role at this, 
uh, restaurant as a high school kid. I mean, did you get out of that restaurant at all? Were you working at other type? Yeah. So, okay. so Antonio's was, uh, I think my, I think I actually started working there before I was technically legal to work. But <laughs> I was there, I think from, I was about 14, 15 to 17 years old. And then I, I spent two summers in my high school. I, I played sports in the spring and, and fall. So there wasn't a lot of time for, uh, for working then. Um, so in the summertime, um, I took a job at a place called Apricots in Farmington, Connecticut. Okay. And that was my first taste of fine dining. Um, it was a beautiful restaurant, uh, family owned, French influence, white tablecloth. Gotcha. Uh, and um, when I think back at those days, I was a senior in high school and I was working Garmanger. Uh, they had a patio in the summer and I was sort of running the menu for the patio, simple sandwiches and salads. Uh, but it was my first taste in, in, in cutting teeth with um, real cooks, yeah, uh, professional cooks, guys that had gone to culinary school. Um, it was the first time I smelled that competitive spirit and, and that energy in the kitchen. And, um, I was really taken by it. I loved it. Nice. That's when the, the bugs started to take over. Yeah, yeah. The chef there was really uh, uh, w- was really uh, cool, and 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 he knew that um, that that I that I was very interested in, in the art, and he he took me under his wing while I was there. Um, and then when I was in college, I spent most of my summers. I did one summer in Nantucket, and then the rest on Martha's Vineyard, uh, working at a couple beautiful restaurants. And um, you know, the season out there is just absolutely incredible. It's 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 a it's a Saturday night every single night for four months straight. So I was, uh, I was really, I honed a lot of my skills on the summers out there. And this speed. is when you're in, taking classes, you're in college during this time, correct? Exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. The summers nice. uh, while I was at Cornell, I was, I was on the Island. Nice. I love that approach. I love that approach of going to school for the business side, learning the, the, the things that people just take for granted, things that, will make or break you in the long run. And then during your summers, during the time where most people would be relaxing, you're out there busting your ass, learning the other side of the business, uh, finding out what you're truly passionate about, really fine tuning, uh, you know, your skills and why you're in this industry. Is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's safe to say that I, from the time I was 15, I held a job in a kitchen pretty much constantly nice. uh, from one place to another. I was, I was hooked and it was, it wasn't obvious to me at the time that it was sort of like uh, a necessity for mm-hmm. me. Uh, but looking back now, I can see that just the pattern and the flow and the different places I worked at and the time that I spent there and where I went to next. It was, it was almost like um, an addiction. Mm. You know, it was a, it was a trail of addiction uh, <laughs> of finding, finding the next best greatest kitchen, uh, learning more. It was, it was, it was awesome. So wait, the, that's cool that you said that it was kind of like an addiction, but I really want to know what exactly it was you were addicted to. And I think you kind of said it just real quick. It was the learning, the the getting out there, finding new things, experiencing new experiences. What exactly was the addiction? Uh, the addiction for me was, sure, it was the cooking part. It was the mechanical part. It was putting X, Y, Z together on a plate and making it work. Um the fundamentals of that, but it was also just the, the actual culture and um, the whole peripheral uh, of of cooking and cuisine um, was so interesting. There was always a story behind something. Mm. You know, this, this 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 certain rice from this area in the south of France uh, uh, 
is is special because it you know it's it's growing in the salt marshes that have been tended by this family for so long. And, and you know, when you talk about that, it's just that there's a fairy tale under over everything. Yeah, amazing amount of layers you can peel back and and get down to it. I had a professor at Cornell, Giuseppe Pizzotti, who I know Moses uh, would would shout out to. He's <laughs> he's the man. And he's the type of guy that really, while I was at school there, made me see the bigger picture and stop and smell the roses about, yes, it's it's great to go and, and, and be a professional chef and dedicate a lot of your time and energy um, to learning a craft. But if you're not seeing the bigger picture and the beauty behind it all and stories and connections and, and the magic then really missing out. Mm. And at the end of the day, it's the the privilege to be able to share all that with other people, to share what you know with your, oh, yeah. your team, with your, your guests and to, to tell that story. And it's that experience that you get when these, these stories are being told to you that really, you know, make, make the, the ultimate experience in my opinion. Um, Absolutely. Awesome. You can't lose sight of that. Beautiful. So, I mean, I, I definitely want to shine some light on, the path you, you took to get to where you are today. Cause you have some incredible work experience, but I also want to spend some time discussing how present and company came to be and how you put that partnership together and the challenges you had there. So keeping that in mind, like put a spotlight in some of the key moments of your career, some of the key experiences you had during th- this time where you're developing as a professional. Sure. Uh, my time at Cornell was, was huge, uh, working, uh, both in a couple different, you know, Ithaca, New York is just an amazing place. Um, I miss it, uh, very much so. And it has just this incredible bustling restaurant scene. So to be a college student, to be young, to be into this industry and to be surrounded in a city that, uh, is also just, you know, has one of the most beautiful farmer's markets in the East coast. Um, but has that just natural restaurant culture was really great. So I, I, I worked at a few great places there uh, as well as this student run hotel, the Statler hotel um, just surrounded by just, just amazing energy and persona and just incredible talent. Um, New York city was game changer. I moved to New York after uh, graduation and, and uh, that's when I started working for David Boulay and, and that's when I started having nightmares about being a cook. <laughs> what year did you graduate? 2004. Okay. So 2004, you go to work in New York City. You start working with some incredible people like David Boulay. How did you get that job? Um, I, I, I went to a couple different places and staged. Okay. Uh, you know, that's, that's what a young cook should do is, is knock on the door and shake some hands and come back and, and work a little bit and was, see how it goes. was this when you were in college you were doing the stages or post-graduation? No. So, yeah, after after school, I did one more summer season out on the vineyard. Okay. And, um, and then I started looking for a job. And I actually went to Boston first. Um, my family is more based in Boston than okay. New York. I guess you could say that. There's a lot of people in New York now, too. Um, but... I looked at Boston market first and it's funny because I was very keen on working for Barbara Lynch at number nine park. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to very much uh, join her team there. I thought it was great. I staged there. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have any positions open. So, um, you know, I looked at some other places in Boston. I had uh, 
a couple offers and some nice opportunities. Um, I decided to look at New York as well. And, you know, I did uh, get an offer from Boulay. And so uh, the day I was moving um, out of my parents' house in Connecticut to New York, I got a call from uh, Chef Cuisine at uh, number nine asking me if I was still oh, man. getting open. So I think I think um, uh, nostalgically about that day because it's it was, it was a kind of crossroad. You know, if I had decided to go to Boston, it would have been a whole other scene. Yeah. Whole other deal. But um, lo and behold, I, I went to the Big Apple and I'm – so happy I did so. I had a great experience at um, Danube, which was David Boulay's now closed um, Austrian-Hungarian kind of German-themed restaurant. And it was uh, right around the corner from his uh, famous Boulay restaurant in Tribeca. Um, at the time, uh, J.D. Hilborn uh, was the chef's cuisine. He was a younger dude from Alabama, Um super talented and just finished up school at um, French Culinary Institute. So he was running the kitchen and I took to him very, very soon. And uh, he offered me a position at Garmanger. So I worked Garmanger until basically, um, until basically Danube closed. Danube closed about a, eight to nine months after I joined because uh, Chef Boulet was in the process of opening the bakery uh, and focusing his efforts on what is now Brushstroke and a few other of his projects. So working for David Boulay and, and being in his in Danube Kitchen, um, and I would also work at um, Boulay occasionally. Um, chef Cesar uh, was the chef de cuisine who's now running uh, Chef's Table in Brooklyn Fair. So um, that was certainly my first experience in a uh, New York City, if not world-class kitchen for a world-class chef. Um, and it was absolutely electrifying. What did you learn? What was the biggest lesson, your biggest takeaway from this experience? Um, it's a loaded I, question. There's probably so much you took away from it. Like, how do you choose? Yeah, well, no, from just working for David Goulet and yeah. being there specifically. I noticed mostly, and maybe it's because I was kind of fresh out of school and I, you know, had this sort of idealistic perspective on the business and thinking I knew um, how things should be done. And uh, I, I was amazed by what he could do as a chef and as a businessman. Um, But I knew also that it wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was too much. What do you mean Uh, what he could do? Give me guess. have, uh, Have three different restaurants, do this catering business, do this consulting stuff. Um, my idea of a chef was a guy that, you know, came in the back door or did the receiving, uh, set up the kitchen, got the lines, heated mm-hmm. the stocks, uh, starts his prep and works service. And his role and this idea of a chef now was completely different than that. And it was, you know, it was the, it was the, the glitz and glamor a little bit of New York, uh, shining through. Um, but, uh, he, for me, it was, it was too chaotic. Um, I wanted to work for a chef who was there every day Mm. and was uh, focused on one thing that I could really learn from. Um, I know I could have learned an amazing amount from him, but he just had so much going on that he wasn't in the kitchen every day. Mm. So uh, fortunately I went to the Le Bernadette uh, right after where I got to work with um, some of the best guys in the business uh, and work very closely with them, including chef repair. 
Yeah, Chef Repair. I re- recently read his book, 32 Yokes, uh, and his story is really amazing. And it, his, you, you really just get a sense of how much he cares in that book. I don't know. if Did you, did you get a chance to read the book? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. What, was the, what was the lessons that you got from Chef Repair and the, the other chefs at Le Bernardin? I think from Chef uh, at Le Bernardin, we learned uh, really for the first time an incredible respect for product. Mm. Um, he was a French chef. He was a trained French chef, worked for some of the best guys, including, you know, Robichon at Jamin and then with Jean-Louis Paladin. Uh, he just had an incredible system um, from uh, from the purchasing and receiving side to the uh, – the, the brigade that mm. was in that kitchen. Um, it was, it was, it was top. It was absolutely top and incredibly intimidating. Um, it was the hardest job I had by far, uh, since then. Um, and then, uh, he had, you know, he had, uh, he had Chris Muller, the chef de cuisine who'd been there since, you know, since he graduated culinary school and, had basically created a system that uh, was absolutely flawless and it was great to work the services. It was great to do the private events in the salon. Uh, it was just great to be part of La Bernadette at that time. Uh, the Michelin guide came out in 2006, I want to say in New York. I think that's when I was there. And uh, La Bernadette was one of the four restaurants that got three stars and to see the look on chef's face and how happy that made him as a French man in America with Michelin guide coming, he's arrived, he's there, you know, to carry on that torch that Gilbert started with his sister, Maggie, the, the original owners mm-hmm. of Le Bernadette. It was just a really magical spot. Yeah. Really- you know, it's, I remember from his book, um, the emphasis he put on never wanting to open a restaurant that gave him, that gave his, his employees, his future employees, the same anxiety and stress that he felt working. Uh, I was, I want to say jamming. That's how it looks, but we'll, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, well, Paris. yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So did he, did he accomplish that? I guess like, what was it like working under him? Was, did you feel the same levels of stress that he felt in the way he expressed it in his book? Or did he achieve that goal of making it, you have a funny look on your face. I'm curious what you're going to say. Like, uh, no. <laughs> I think, uh, well, let's get from, from my experience, a chef never raised his voice really ever. Okay. He was just this, this wave of, of, of Pacific and, uh, was always, uh, was always present and, and in good form. Um, there was a lot of pressure on his team of sous chefs and, uh, to push us, um, but there was an incredible sense of obedience and structure, and it always seemed to work. How did he? How did he create that? I mean, what what happened in your opinion, or what do you think he might have done to be able to create that culture of obedience? And uh, this, you, you mentioned earlier, you alluded to this the incredible flawless system that he built. Like, what do you think he did to achieve that? I don't know. I wish I'm trying to find that out too. (laughs) Figured it out. Um, I'm not sure he's sharing it with everyone, but he certainly figured something great out. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, you know, I think he's put obviously the time in. He he put the time in as a cook and, and worked and um, and commands respect through his just ability. Yeah. Um, he one great thing about cooking is you know really the proof is in the pudding. Uh, you, you you can't sugarcoat uh, a lot of this. There's it's either you can do it or you can't. You can see it or you, you don't see it. Um, and he's, he's definitely a chef that, uh, you know, throw him on the line, he'll work and he'll work better than you. He'll mm. show you how to do it better. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to is that respect thing. you like being willing to do the work and be getting your hands dirty, showing people that you're, you're going to work to the standard you expect them to work. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's probably hugely contributes to his success, but let's bring it back to you. This, this, the story is about you now. Uh, you spent some time in France. Why did you make that trip? Uh, I wanted to go to France, uh, probably since I was 15. Um, and, uh, so being in New York, working at French restaurant for a French chef, um, just so happened that, uh, a lot of these things kind of lined up for me. I was very fortunate. Um, Towards the end of my uh, stint at La Bernadette, um, the, the scholarship uh, for a Jean-Louis Paladin Foundation trip was uh, was being offered. Chef Repair posted it in the kitchen, and he encouraged uh, some of the younger guys to take a look at it and possibly apply. At that time, I was really keen on the fact that uh, there's got to be a lot of opportunities for me to go work somewhere exotic, somewhere far away. Um, up until now, I've basically been on the East coast and I was hungry to see what's out there. Okay. And, um, so, uh, Europe was always sort of a big one and, and France being kind of the, the center of it. Um, I applied for the scholarship. And so scholarship basically is, uh, let's bring young cooks, uh, out to different areas of, uh, of the world and let them experience how, uh, things get to their restaurant door. So, you know, go hang out in your part of the woods in Maine and learn how guys uh, fish for lobster. Okay. Um, send them out to the Bering Sea and see how they do fishing with um, Alaskan fishermen. Okay. Or go to the chef's garden in Ohio and learn about organic farming. I had an opportunity to go to Bordeaux and learn about wine. Awesome. So uh, that was awesome. And I uh, went with one other chef who was also working in New York at the time for two weeks and we were hosted in Bordeaux by uh, who's now a good friend of mine, Christophe Chateau, um, who um, just did an amazing job of introducing us to the world of wine in Bordeaux and um, from both, you know, the classified growths to the small co-ops to, you know, everything in between. So we did a lot of traveling in his van and and visiting wineries and and learning about the process, um, both from, you know, the winemaking process to the wine business. Um, and we were treated to several beautiful lunches and dinners. And we had uh, an opportunity to have dinner at La Tupina in Bordeaux, where I ended up working. And for me, it was really one of the most memorable dining experience I had. We sat in the sort of um, sublime dining room uh, that faces the open wood cranked spit and chimney 
um, when you walk into sort of this cavernous restaurant. And La Chupino was at that time being operated by Jean-Pierre Zaradaki, the owner and chef for about 40 years. Wow. So it just had this incredible, I mean, both literally and, and metaphorically smell to it um, of, of, of seasoning. If you oh, man. La Tupina means, um, I believe it pretty much means the, 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 the cauldron that hangs over the fire in a home. It's, uh, it's sort of a Basque term for it. Okay. So the Tupina is, is certainly there when you walk in. It's, it's hanging over the open fire. Um, so we sat and had dinner with Jean-Pierre, the owner, Christophe, uh, Dennis, the other chef, and I. And as soon as I cut into that first foie gras miqui with the grilled country bread and, and the cornichons, it was, uh, I melted. I mean, I, I just really was like, this is, this is so, so nice, man. Um, I was in love and I uh, spot on basically towards the end of the dinner, I asked John Pierre if he would consider uh, hiring me if to come back and work. Um, and I think because of my relationship with, uh, with the Jean-Louis Paladin Foundation and, um, and, and just that timing. Again, I think I was very fortunate in my timing. Things were lined up that he agreed. And so uh, went home and did the deed with the consulate, got my visa and was issued a uh, young jeune travailler uh, pass, basically a young worker's pass for a year to work. And um, so I moved back to Bordeaux. Jean-Pierre helped me get a, a small apartment in the neighborhood that was close to the restaurant. So very quickly, I was I was living the dream. I was in France, and I was working at this incredible, beautiful bistro, La Tupina. Oh, man, that does sound amazing. And, you know, when I listen to my guests talk, i got to try to pull out pieces that will that we can learn from and act on and up to this point, it seems like a big part of your success is just surrounding yourself with incredible people and learning from people who just have committed their lives to this. And um, we're already halfway through this conversation. It's crazy how fast time's going. But, I mean, what were the, the biggest lessons, if you could just boil it down to a few lessons that you learned from all these incredible people before coming back and before serving as a, an executive chef in Connecticut? Well, before I came home, um, just being surrounded by the, the, the French culture was was very effective for me. Um, what was it about the, the French culture that was so impactful? To oh, just, just their love for the pleasures of the table, mm. um, how seriously they took it, um, how you would go from one town to the other and there would be this big sort of to do about, you know, well, we, we make our piece do better than this town makes their piece do. And this is because the, the basil grows on this, side. you know, it's just the, the, the specific specificity of their cuisine and the regionality of French cuisine. I wasn't expecting that. And I was totally blown away by how different it was. Um, certainly got a chance to experience that from, you know, with my second job living and working in a different part of France um, under very different, uh, circumstances. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. Basically it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the product, the respect for it, the amount of fuss that takes place to prepare dinner to the amount of soigné, the amount of care, uh, that 
that everyone is, is putting into uh, the nourishment that they're sharing with their friends and their family and, and the amount of joy they get from that. It's just, it was really, really cool. Okay, so the big things I'm taking away from you, what what you got from these experiences is just the respect for the product and the the level of intensity uh, that is you know just possible, the, the pleasures you can get from the table and just that how how deep it can go, what the what the potential is, what it you know taking that bringing that back home with you, and you know using that to I guess maybe inspire the new teams that you were now in charge of like how like how are you using these things that you learned and bringing that back home and putting it towards your own success in your own career i think number one i was trying to i was trying to cook uh <laughs> type of food a style of food uh, i very much wanted to replicate what i had seen what i had done that was that was that chapter in my cook's life for me was I, I didn't have uh, this desire to 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 for, for some origin uh, of, of my own. I was merely trying to technique it. We would call it all that. We? Yeah. Terms in a couple of my kitchens and some of the cooks I worked with. It's just we use that word a lot. It's technique it. Technique it. Okay. Make it nice. Technique it. <laughs> um, so is- yeah, that was that was how I was trying to do it. If if, if I could technique it. And I could make it nice and people could see that both from the production of it to the final, you know, enjoyment of it. Then, then that, that was awesome. Okay. So now I'm more of like a, I guess, business level as a personal development and professional development level. When you were taking all these roles overseas and growing as a professional, were you being intentional? Were you trying to become a person of value so you could have more leverage? Uh, and maybe partnering with people or becoming more appealing to that potential investor or partner? Like what was going on in the back of your mind and like how you were trying to build yourself up on, on paper and a resume? Yeah. Um, I don't think I had as much of a mindset with how am I going to create a more attractive investment uh, uh, background for me uh, or luring potential partners for a business my head really wasn't there yet. My head was more about uh, taking in as much uh, of 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 my training as possible, and 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 refining that and, and bringing it home with me. So just do the work, you know, is what I'm. What I, it's like what I'm reading between the lines is get in there, get the experiences, do the work, and through doing the work, you will become a, a person of value naturally. But just focus. Yeah. What you did is just focused on the work. Yeah, I, I I think in a lot of ways what I saw, especially in France, was the ultimate kind of breaking down. So, you, so there's a level where you know you, you cook and you want to be a cook and you you create a career based on being a cook, and and then there's guys you work with who you see and they you see their rigor, their day to day stamina, their their constant uh, just level uh, of, of precision. And it's really, really admirable. And, and that's sort of where I was always trying to get to. And I kind of felt like it, it, there'd be this breaking point where I'd, you know, wake up one day and I'd be like, okay, like I can cook now, like for real. <laughs> and, um, and I think that kind of happened for me in France. Cause just cause the overall intensity and, and the hours um, and the pressure and the work just, 
eventually kind of broke, there was something broke in me and let me kind of become okay with uh, more taking on more and being more and, and accepting that and being able to swallow that mise en place list that just seems incredible every day and you don't know how you're ever going to finish it. But, you know, the next day it's not going to be as bad and, and the next day you actually get it and it's that chipping away. And so, yeah, I think the day-to-day, just the beast of working in like a Michelin-starred restaurant um, helped me really become, I think, a solid cook. Beautiful. So let's kind of come more to like present time. Um, how did you set yourself up for present and company? What things did you do that made you ready in the kind of take us through that process of president company and the lessons you can share with us that we can apply in our own lives. If we're sure. trying to go through and open our own restaurant right now. So present company, uh, I should mention as well was previously a restaurant. Okay. Um, we, we, my partner, Tom Gale and I purchased it, um, about a year ago. So we're in August 31st was our first day of, uh, of operation last year. So we're, we're still a young and um, baby, I should say, but um, we, it was, so because of that situation, it wasn't different. It wasn't like we created a space out of nothing and it was carte blanche. This is very much a restaurant with a very much loyal clientele base, uh, strong reputation. Um, so the picture that, I, that painted itself for us presented a different path, I think, to it. Um, I, you know, was at on 20 and Hartford for almost 10 years when I came back from France, mm-hmm. started as a sous chef there and then, uh, was the head chef for several years. And towards the end of my career there, I, I was when I was really starting to look at, um, opportunities for, going on my own in the Hartford area. So, uh, I, I, so I noticed that a lot of, I mean, your, your, uh, your partners, you met them at on 20, right? So yeah. t- take us, take us through that. Um, sure. how, how this partnership came together in how you found the opportunity and how you moved on to do your own thing. Um, all right. So I guess on 20 is, such a special place, such a cool restaurant and so unique. And I was there for a long time. And, and I think the best time that I was there was when my, my current partner, Tom Gale and I were, uh, were, were both working alongside each other. Tom um, was a, a mutual friend and was in the business uh, in the Hartford area. Um, and, he came and joined the team at on 20, um, I believe in 2014. And, uh, during that year we took, which was, um, a, sort of an operation that was primarily lunch with special events. Um, that at that time we were doing dinner at on 20 only Thursday and Friday night. Um, because Hartford is, you know, is unique. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a unique market. The restaurant that we were doing was, um, was was super high end concept was high end price point was high end um so it was it was a different business mix and was really cool the time that he was there the year that we both worked along each other 
we ended up um, creating a, a really cool, more open, public, dynamic space in that in that restaurant. Where by the time we both left, um, on twenty was operating for dinner Wednesday through Saturday, with uh, just an incredible surge of business and, and traffic. So, so it was cool, it was cool to have us work very for a very brief time and see the results. Okay, you know, from your work. hard work, yeah. Beautiful. So when did you know that you might be going into business as a partner with Tom Gale? And I think you have the other partner who is uh, Danielle Casey. So how did this all come together? I'm really curious about that part of it. Right. So Tom and I are the only partners. Okay. Right. Okay. Tom and I, uh, he sort of, when he left on 20, I stayed for another year or so. He went to pursue other interests, uh, other opportunities. Uh, the couple that owned the restaurants called the mill at two T before we opened present company, um, were in contact with both Tom and I about, Hey, we're going to relocate. Uh, we've got a gem of a restaurant. We're looking for the right guys to possibly take it okay. over. Okay. Would be interested. So, um, initially because it's in, my hometown of Simsbury in a village called Terrafil in Simsbury, uh, I sort of uh, shrugged a little bit when I first was presented with it. Um, but shortly thereafter realized that well, it could be awesome. It could be really awesome. So um, I started to discuss a little bit more with, um, with the previous owners. Tom was involved initially and then um, uh, kind of, uh, re-engaged a little bit later on down the road of the negotiation. So, um, and and that was crucial. I was potentially going to try to take over this restaurant without a right-hand man with me. And um, leading up to that uh, was was tough. Um, And then I got one of the best phone calls, I think, of my life when Tom basically told me that, you know, he was going to leave his current position and he was going to, he wanted to join me. He wanted, he wanted to go after it with me. Um, that really solidified, vindicated this opportunity for me. It became real. It became, um, it became, it became real then. And so it became real exciting. And, and so about after a couple months after that is when we, we closed and, um, we, we bought the restaurant on July 9th of last year and we opened our doors on August 31st. So, uh, less than, Five weeks it took us for, to kind wow. of flip it and get it open for business. That's fast. So why why Tom Gale? What was it about Tom Gale that you know was in, cemented in your mind about he's gonna he needs to be my right hand man? What did he bring to the table? Uh, Tommy and I just have a lot of fun working with each other, and I think we work so hard that we recognize how important it is to uh, to laugh once in a while. Um, to, to, to take it a little bit on the, on the lighter side. Um, I mean, we all know how intense this business is and, and how much sleep we lose over this guest not having their water poured, you know. Um, it, it, it weighs incredibly much on him as our general manager, owner, um, and, and we have such a small dining room that I knew the persona, the affability, his demeanor, just his presence. I mean, people just want to be around this guy. Mm. Um, And I certainly do. So 
um, from a business standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. I want my guests to be around um, uh, a guy who just exudes character and hospitality and, and openness. Um, so, and then Tommy works as hard as I do and his head is the same way. It's, 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 we're, we're work hard. That's, what's, that's what skills did he bring to the table that you oh, may be lacking? Oh, everything. I mean, he, Tom uh, had run very successful restaurant, uh, group, uh, for several years. So, I mean, he was, um, pretty much uh, well-versed in almost any facet of, manager, even ownership role in a fine dining restaurant. Uh, he also just had an incredible amount of, uh, we could say like posse, you know, he just had a ton of people who had worked for him, who valued working for him, who would follow him if he moved somewhere. Uh, you know, he's the type of guy that, um, was, it was very easy for him to build a team very quickly and help me build a team very quickly and instill a really good culture. Man, I I love what you're giving us right now, and it's my job to kind of to hear below the surface, go deeper, and really try to find the 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 nuggets in in the story you're telling. For me, the nugget, the multiple nuggets. First, the the big one is just the the power of just showing up and doing the work and becoming a person of value. Getting the experience, uh, you know, and just compounding that knowledge, that experience over time. And if you focus on just hustling, doing the work, getting that experience, becoming a person of value, opportunities will literally get thrown at you. And that seems kind of like what happened here. Like you just, you, you put your head down, nose to the grind, got the experience over like 14 years of just working in the industry, more than that probably, uh, with your experience in high school. And these people literally came to you, beautiful location, beautiful spot they're they're headed to south carolina they need they need somebody to take over this baby and they came to you um and you know the the other nuggets i mean first do you want to reflect on that at all before i i, I share some of the other thoughts i had i mean you, you in a nutshell eric you nailed it thank you well you know you made it so obvious though i mean it, it's all like right there Good. <laughs> and then the other huge part of this that i love too is um the power of knowing that you need somebody else you need that right hand man and you knew you were incomplete until until you got that call because he brought that special something to the table uh that i mean it just the, the power of just spending time in the industry networking getting that quote-unquote posse to come join you uh that that person that's going to have that operations side down pat the the, the ownership the the systems processes procedures there's so much you need that right hand man um so just getting the right hand man, getting the experience, pulling this posse along with you, uh, or some of the, the big nuggets I got. I mean, if, if you're going to try to pull off what you pulled off, and it's your first restaurant ever, and you don't, you, you maybe you're, you're just the money, and you're trying to get people to come join you. Like it's not going to have that same weight, that same impact. No, certainly not. Certainly so, not. No. Um, what were your biggest challenges in the past year? Let's let's talk quickly about what you know, how you made it all come together. It sounds like you kind of got a pretty sweet deal because of the reputation you built for yourself. But since you've, you've gone out on your own, what have been your biggest challenges? Um, our biggest challenges uh, as a whole from, for present company um, is continually uh, 
building a clientele base. I think, I mean, that's, we, we are in a, uh, a very uh, unique space from a locale. Um, and there is a lot of forces that would on face value, I think, lend themselves to work to our disadvantage. Um, we are not in center of town. We are not, in the spot in a space we're in very much a uh, boutique almost off the beaten path space in an old mill building um, down by the river, but <laughs> it, it has this incredible feeling to it and, and aura. And I think because of that um, you as an operator, as an owner work harder to make sure that business is sustainable because it's not on front street. And yeah. It's not on and you're not going to have walk-ins. Yeah. Uh, you're going to, you're a destination. You're gonna, yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to, and we, and we've done, I think a great job. I'm super proud of, of, of my whole team. We've done an incredible job of building towards that in mm-hmm. a year. And I, and I, I'm just uh, really excited um, and, and looking forward to seeing how that progresses. Too cool. I think another big challenge for us too, Eric is uh, for me as this is be more of my like cook chefy uh, perspective is uh, not let me say this it is so the the previous owner they would uh, they had this dynamic menu and they would they would change it uh, uh, almost every day if not every week um, it's the space that we operate in is an open kitchen. It's a 2000 square foot brick building that was once a stable to a a textile mill. Um, And so, I mean, I've got a a very small kitchen and it's, it's right there. We're exposed. We are very much exposed. I'm exposed as to my guests. I'm exposed to my, to my staff. Um, So the biggest challenge from me, from a chef guy perspective is just, the day-to-day operating and making it flow and making it work when you're in this dynamic open kitchen, there's people sitting at your counter and you're really um, juggling a lot of things. Mm. Um, That's certainly one of the biggest challenges for me. I had never worked in an open kitchen before. Um, Part of the appeal of the space was exactly because it was open. I I know my team, I, I basically have a three man line, Ethan and Dave, my two other guys are wonderful with our guests. And I know they feed off of that and they love that. They don't, they've never had that experience any other kitchen they've worked at. Beautiful. Uh, But it is a huge challenge. It's intimate. I love it. Um, I do have two questions. First question is you you kind of alluded to the previous owners and what they had set up for you. Do you think that it it helped that there was a different thing there before you? Do you think you might've picked up some of the momentum that they already created and carried that over to your operation? Or is it a challenge that you're different from what was there? Like how did that transition go? Yeah. Great question. A double-edged sword, I'd say, Eric, I think there was some economies of scale based on that. I mean, there was already inherent base of guests that were going to come and check us out just because they know the spot and they Mm -hmm. love it and it was their favorite and they can't believe it's gone. And how could they, how could we ever live up to um, their expectations? And so there was a lot of, you know, there's that whole phase where we had to go through that with so many guests. And fortunately, a lot of them we went over. Unfortunately, some of them we did. And, and that's okay. I mean, um, 
How are you different? I'm curious from the previous location. How are we different from them? Yeah. Uh, significantly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, you know, well, they were a husband wife kind of team. Tom and I are, I mean, you could call us a husband wife work team, but Tom, ha- Tom has a wife and four kids. Um, the culture that we we've created is much different. Um, our, our, I think the level of cuisine is different. Um, I would endeavor to say it's higher. Um, and our service level is higher. Um, we wanted to take what was already a very high, high bar that they set and elevate it and refine it and polish it. The space itself, we didn't do too much manicuring in the dining room because they had done such a wonderful job of creating it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually we will. It's going to take us time to really put our fingerprint on it and make it feel more of present company. But I think within a year, we've really created a nice, nice home for us. And um, I'm super proud of it. Cool. Um, the other question I had uh, is on uh, – this is why I write my questions down because I can never remember them in my head. I'm trying to listen and like stay on top of things. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. How do you build towards being a destination? So uh, you said that you're trying to build towards becoming a destination and that you've come a long way and you've worked towards that. So for other restaurants, that might be a, like a destination type situation where you're off the beaten path, where people are only coming there for you. How do you operate a restaurant to become a destination? What have you learned? Well, I still have quite a bit more to learn. Um, and I would, I would say that it'd be highly unlikely and really optimistic for me to think that I could operate my small fine dining restaurant and be sort of the special occasion only joint for my community. Um, that's going to be really tough to pull off. Um, so what I think any business owner and what any restaurant operator and owner should do is look at the, um, opportunities and the shoulders that lie there. The body of your business is this, it is my special occasion. It is our tasting menu. It is our, uh, you know, high level of cuisine and, and service, but we also offer, uh, different aspects. Um, get, we have, get specific. We have offsite catering. We have sort of family nights. Um, do a couple events outside in our field um, that are more super casual with band and um, yard games. And nice. We, we are we are offering an experience. We're trying to paint a story that isn't particular to just fine dining. Um, it's a story about us being a dynamic restaurant that has an incredible space, both inside outside. Um, with incredible people that are working there, um, putting in a really nice product out. And that product could be hot dogs and hamburgers on a barbecue night that we're doing, or it could be Wagyu beef tongue with sauce gribiche and, you know, micro whatever. So we have to, I think like any restaurant has to be able to be dynamic and fluid and, Mm -hmm. and figure it out. And we certainly haven't figured it out, but we're, we're not saying no to a lot of opportunities. Okay. So one question I like to ask before going to the speed round is, uh, 
on a, the topic of a failure. I mean, a time that you fell on your ass. So can you reflect back to a time maybe in the past year where you, you and your partners made a decision and it wasn't the right decision uh, and take us through that real quick? Sure. Uh, like I said, I think in the beginning mistakes, mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I certainly make mistakes. Uh, and I own them. Um, I think maybe I have two answers. One is more of a technical thing we did wrong. So when we bought the restaurant, we did this whole slew of negotiation and back and forth from our council to their council. And one of the things that we kind of were unfortunately handed with were assuming their gift cards, their outstanding gift cards. Um, and that was tough for them to completely uh, evaluate. And so we were left in a situation for about six to about eight months after we opened, we honored their outstanding gift cards. And there was just a, a lot more than per negotiated. Um, and because of our goodwill and the fact that these are folks that live in our community who did pay for this gift card. Um, we were put in a position where we can't really say no. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to eat a little bit on that. And, and, and that was, um, that was certainly a mistake on our part. I think going forward with any sort of new endeavor, when you're negotiating like that, uh, really take the time to, uh, how to, much, to, sorry. I, yeah, I'm curious I, how I, much I, of a hole they put you in with the, the gift cards, what you're up against. Yeah, it wasn't a crazy amount, but I mean, we're a small spot. And You're a new restaurant, opening restaurant, small margins, like every little bit matters. Every dollar bill. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so that was unfortunate. I think, but I think, so I have a better answer. Can I go to my better answer now? Okay. Go for it. <laughs> a better answer for the biggest failure that I've had was um, I I did a little stint with competitions. I competed in the Boku store, okay. the national competition, and then I went to uh, Paris and did a competition called the, the Trophy Passion, and um, it was great, an amazing experience. Uh, I was representing the United States of America in this Boku esque, uh, Boku store esque uh, competition, and I had trained with a, a couple coaches several months leading up to, and we had you know, spend so much time just grinding over the details of this garnish and this being this here and this platter having to look like this, that when it came to game day, uh, we had totally overlooked a certain rule that was you have to have X amount of this garnish instead of what we thought it was. So, you know, without getting the specifics of it, we made a huge blooper. I was the first chef to kind of present my platter with my garnishes and everything. And I had half of what I was supposed to have. Oh man. And it was just, for me, it was like, not only just, am I in the spotlight? Am I in front of the coaches and chefs, but I'm sort of on an international spotlight. Um, and it was, it was really embarrassing. Um, but, uh, the cool thing about it, it really, like I said, mistakes are great, and it was like one of my biggest mistakes, and it was an incredible learning experience. So, so 
would you say like the biggest mistake in that experience was the attention to detail and missing that little detail? Yeah, maybe maybe that's it, Eric. Maybe that now that we're talking it out, I mean, the reality was you were there for a big reason, and maybe I didn't see that. Maybe it was just so consumed by the details. Okay. Interesting. Cool. And I mean, I think as far as the other failure you shared with us, the lesson there is the, the emphasis that you need to put on cash. I mean, like cash is king. And especially when you're young, you can't put yourself into a hole or, you know, you're a young business. You can't put yourself into that hole early on, uh, getting your, yourself you know, cash light, uh, Cash flow is king. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll come back, bust out a fast speed round. Holy crap. It's already eight past the hour. We've all been there. I'm sure you have been uh, just going through that stack of menus every night, pulling out the nasty, soiled, expensive pieces of paper, putting them aside, throwing them away. God, it's so frustrating. This is a line item that just gets the best of us. It destroys our budget and people are so freaking dirty. It's like, ah, Anyway, what if I told you that I discovered a piece of paper that's rip-proof and waterproof, 100% rip-proof and waterproof. This stuff is so durable, it's what the military uses to print their navigational maps and charts on. Like They trust this stuff, and now they're printing menus on it. Head over to TerraSlate.com paper.com to learn more guys i'm telling you this stuff is durable i've seen the owner kyle ewing throw this menu through a dishwasher to prove its durability again terraslatepaper.com that's t-e-r-r-a-s-l-a-t-e paper.com and if you use promotional code unstoppable you will save 15 percent on your first order get after it Yo, guys, so if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely a restaurant or bar owner who wants to be a better leader, who wants to make more money, who wants to be more successful, who wants to work smarter, not harder, and you just want to be great, which means you know you can never stop educating yourself. If that sounds like you and you want to learn how to attract more new customers and get a competitive edge over your competition, sounds pretty good, right? Then you need to listen to this message. You got to listen. Just ready for it? Here it is. Leading industry expert. Nick Fosberg and past guest of Restaurant Unstoppable wrote what I believe to be the best how-to book on attracting new customers and creating highly profitable promotions on a shoestring budget. And because you're Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, he's going to give you this book not for $30 on Amazon, but you're getting it for free. Yeah, free. Go to freebrsbook.com right now and get a copy. Again, that's freebrsbook.com. Get your free copy while supplies last. We're back. And the first question I have for you, Jeff, is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Confidence. Nice. And what is your biggest weakness? Confidence. Okay, dive into why that's your strength and weakness. Uh, the right amount is necessary, I think, to do the job. When you cook, you got to be confident what you're doing. Know that it's going to taste good, that people are going to enjoy it, that price that you're asking to charge for it is inherent valuable and, and it's, it's there. Uh, but having too much of it certainly could be detrimental to, I think, your success. Okay. What's one lesson on leadership you can share with us? 
uh, lead by example. Um, it's tough to lead if you're not there, if you're not present. I dig it. And what is one question you ask during the interview process or thing you look for when you're bringing new people onto your team? Um, I've been fortunate enough to not have to do too many interviews since we've opened present company at the <laughs> same team, which is great. Um, but when I am fortunate enough to have someone that wants to come work with me, which I still think is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to ask him basically, why do you want to work at present company? Why, what is it about present company that interests you? Awesome. And what are you looking for? Just curious. Uh, in a candidate. Yeah. Or in, the, um, in an answer to that question, why us? Um, I think the answer, the best answer for me would be because uh, because I want to learn, because I'm interested, because your food is tasty. Okay. And <laughs> good, good answer. Um, what's one thing besides the food that President and Company does well that separates you from other restaurants in your community? Uh, we offer a bit of a experience. Um, we it's it's dinner, but it's also a bit of an experience, like going to a show. Because of our open kitchen, especially the guests that sit at the counter, um, I mean, they get to see they get to see the action, and they a lot of them really really like that, and the interaction that they have with the cooks. Um, it's really like when five o'clock is, and the doors open, it's the curtains up. I'm going to put impactful interactions and experiences. <laughs> I like I it. Uh, what is one book we must read to become a better restaurant owner or just person in general? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to offer two. One is The Unprejudiced Palette by uh, Angelo Pellegrini. That's the first time mentioned on the show. The other one would be The Supper of Lamb. Um, do, do you say the supper of the lamb or this? What was it? The supper of the lamb. Okay. What were your biggest lessons or, or takeaways from these books? So, uh, the unprejudiced palette is a Tuscan immigrant sort of account on the good life. Now that he's moved to the Northwest of the United States and it just basically revolves around um, the pleasures of the table, knowing what quality is, knowing how to prepare it, knowing what inherent freshness and uh, and 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 the ple- basically the pleasures of the table from an old sort of paisan uh, perspective. Um, I really identify with that. It's sort of like you know I, I was very close with both my grandparents and. I love the way that they would regard food and the memories I have, the food that they would share with us in the, t- in the tables that, you know, we sat down together with. Um, he does a really good job of kind of putting that stuff in perspective for both at the time. And I think for a lot of people today could benefit from reading that and kind of stop, slow down and mm. kind of smell the roses a little bit. Brings more. you back to why we do it all in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And uh, what about supper of the lamb? Uh, Supper of the Lamb is, is just kind of a, for me, it's, it, uh, it touched on, so it's, it's about a Catholic priest, um, sort of, uh, love of food and, um, you know, like 
a lot of priests, their lives revolve around all things in the church, uh, and and the the the, the sacraments, the 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 ritual aspect of the Catholic Church, uh, with some food and wine, and how that's integrated. I thought, and his perspective on it was really cool. Um, it's basically both these books. I think what they really do for me is is they give what a professional chef should stop and smell and remember about like, these are your grandparents. This is why they do it. This is why they love food. This is why it's connected to society and civilization. And yeah. Culture. It's so important. You know, it's, yeah. you bring up a really great point. I think people lose sight of what food is and we treat it too much like a commodity and we forget that food is life. You know, it's what it's all about. And the food is a literally life and we wouldn't be who we are today if not for what we've done in, you know, and how we've passed down all these lessons about food. I mean, it's literally formed cultures and societies. Uh, and we can't lose sight of that. It's yeah, totally. I love it. Um, all right. So what is one technology that president and company has leveraged or adopted that has really had an impact on uh, communication, uh, profitability, proficiency that you can share with our audience. Um, we're, I would, I would say that if you would classify us, we're a high tech or high touch and low tech kind of business. <laughs> um, you know, we do operate with, uh, with, you know, as good as a POS system as anyone. What POS uh, did you go with? Uh, we have toast. Okay. Why toast? Toast is cool. I, I like their kind of culture. The, the people that introduced us to, uh, to them, uh, I respected and, um, we've just had a great experience with them so far. Um, it, it kind of feels like they get it. They're restaurant owners and operators themselves. And they were like, Hey, let's build a better, uh, yeah. especially for us, for a small operation with a small dining room. It's not like I have a ton of, factors going on. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. So it works great for us. Um, it gives us timely and current, uh, stats, um, it integrates into, uh, our, our financial system as well. And what so financial system are you using? We use QuickBooks. Okay. So, uh, it, it plays well with other platforms and, uh, you get that data that you really like. What's one feature that is unique to toast that you never had before in another operating platform that you love? Uh, I would say the, the remote ability, um, you know, we're, we're looking at our phones now Mm -hmm. and having to go sit down in front of a computer and printing out a report or whatever I've done in the past and other operations. Um, this system lends itself for me to say, Hey, I'm outside having coffee and let's go look at this and I can pop it up. Beautiful. Awesome. And I am proud to say that Toast is sponsoring Restaurants Unstoppable. Yeah. yeah. So they are a great platform. Uh, it's one of the most recommended POS companies on the show and uh, super happy to be getting sponsored by such a great company. Shout out to Toast. I have another answer. Please. Um, so the, the, the most... I tell my, my guys this all the time. I don't even know who told me this, but I just love this this sort of this could be like my mantra or quote too, uh, that the, the most valuable technology, the most valuable machine in a kitchen 
is a skilled cook's intuition. Someone's ability, someone's intuitive ability to to perform and to cook and, and not depend on any recipe or ratio or whatever. It's that sort of intuitive ability that I think is so cool. And that's a, that's a technology. That oh, I man. I wish I could link to that in the show notes. But uh, unfortunately, you got to work hard for that one. You can't just buy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So with all the knowledge you have now, Chef Jeff, if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of business advice uh, that would make you a better version of who you are today, what would that advice be? Uh, my advice would be to... I could go back and tell myself, I would say, slow down and slow down and think twice before you season. Slow down and think twice. Twice before before you you decide you're going to do that or you're going (laughs) to add it to this plate. You know, just just think twice. Mm -hmm. I think less, sometimes less is, is, is a lot more. I love it. And uh, like always, we wrap up. Actually, almost forgot to ask you, is there one question I could have asked or something we didn't discuss that you think I could have brought up or could have asked? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at my background, um, one of the toughest job, I we didn't talk about the toughest job I ever had. And that was working for Jacques Chabois, the best Steve Sentence one, the second job I had in France. Okay. That was, uh, he was the toughest chef to work for. What was tough about him? His demands, uh, his, the way he, um, you know, like you mentioned in 32 Yokes, there was a lot of that going on um, with with when Chef was at Robichon. And, I, you know, I'm certainly not in that era, in that time, because things have changed a lot, but in many ways they haven't. Mm-hmm. And things still work the same way. And, not just restaurants, but so many businesses and operations rely on fear and animosity to get the job done. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still out there for sure. Mm. It's tough on a lot of guys and a lot of young cooks who are incredibly talented and have a ton of potential. Um, when they're exposed to that, it can really be, uh, a, a, you know, a game changer for them. So how are you better now because of this experience? How, how did you apply that experience in your life? Uh, to, to know not to not do ever, that ever. <laughs> to, <laughs> to be able to say, okay, this guy's doing it. I mean, he's two-star Michelin chef. He's, he's the guy. He's, but can you do it? And do you get the same results by not doing that? Can you do it a different way? Mm. Is it harder to to be, is it harder to listen than yell? Is it harder to uh, stop than go? I don't know, but I think it. I think it is. I think it's easier to 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 do sort of to, to have that kind of thing that he had um, and where that was. But there was also a reason because it was a two star Michelin beautiful restaurant in France. Yeah, you know, I struggle with that. I go back and forth on it because you look at these incredibly successful restaurateurs uh, who run their kitchens in that brigade manager that you know that that really strict, um, you know, throw a pan at your head way, 
and they're super successful. I mean, they're crushing it, but everything that I've learned on what it takes to be successful says, don't do that. Right. So it's weird. It, 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 it's like conflicting, like, you know, I don't know. Like it's, it's tough, but I, well, mean, I would say, I would say it comes down to, you know, how are we measuring success? Mm. You can measure success in your rating the, in the guide, how uh, many stars you have <laughs> stars or how many, you know, stars you have, whatever it is. It is all about how you value that, how you measure that. And I think what I'm really fortunate to have today is um, a business, a restaurant, a kitchen, a space, a team, a life, a career, a job, all these things that are surrounded by um, a really good mix of the, the, the experiences that I've had. And uh, it, it's a privilege to be able to to share that and, and to, to perform and do every day. Mm-hmm. You bring up a good point. Would you say that these tougher kitchens you worked in, would, when you're looking at the the people in those kitchens, would you say they are happy or would you say that they're chasing the star and they're not necessarily the most fulfilled person? I would say that in the midst of it, if you ask that person, are you happy right now? While they're on hour eight of their 14 hour shift, um, they're probably going to say no. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think if you ask them 10 years later, are you happy you worked there? Are you happy you did that? I think you're going to say yes. Yeah. Interesting. I want to go deeper, but we're over our time. I want to respect your time. And uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. That's how I met you, Moses Sabina. He, he called you out. He connected me with you. Who should I get on the show? Who is a great independent restaurant operator? Somebody we can learn from and you know hear their story. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, my boy, Dan Miser and Mystic uh, Connecticut is the owner proprietor of mystic oyster club and, um, engine room. Uh, he is currently doing an incredible project called stone acres. Um, that's going to be similar to kind of like a blue hill. Okay. So oh, nice. He, he's just crushing it. And he always has, I had the fortune of working briefly with him, uh, a long time ago, but he's a native Connecticut dude, good friend of mine, and is just a, an incredible dude. Dan Miser, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, let the folks at home know if we want to maybe come join your team or come experience your cooking or just follow what you're up to. What's the best way to connect? Website, social handles, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram, present company CT, um, our website as well, present company CT.com. Um, come check us out. We're at uh, Terrafil, Connecticut, right on the river. Not too far from Hartford, not too far from the airport. Beautiful. Chef Jeffrey Lazat, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your story, and uh, you know, just kind of being an example of what it takes and it, what, what you can do to get to the point where people literally throw restaurants and opportunities at you. Uh, we learned a ton today, and there is no questioning, my friend. You are unstoppable. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed another episode of Restaurants Unstoppable. Chef Jeff Man. That was fun. Uh, I think for me, what I really took away from today's conversation was 
just the power of putting your nose to the grind, doing the work. This guy, he was studying hospitality, business management in college, and in the summers, he was getting the the back of house experience, you know, fine tuning his craft, uh, and he just always surrounding himself with incredible people and becoming a person of value. And man, it's gonna be so difficult if you want to open a restaurant you don't have that experience you don't have the influence of incredible people working for you i mean you don't realize the power of those people having those incredible people to influence you and um i think you know just behind the scenes he's had all these just powerful influences to help make the the, the business decisions he's making today uh, I love also the, that he tipped his hat to his business partner. And uh, I think that's one thing uh, that you need to make it today in today's industry. Like you need a partner. You need somebody who has skin in the game. You, just, you need to share the wealth. Like you can't expect to be great and do it all yourself and you know not share a piece of the pie. And uh, the acknowledgement he gave his partner that he's fun, hardworking, uh, that, that social intelligence, that he just lights up a room like – you need all these things, and if your strengths are on the back of the house, like you need that other side. Uh, so great stuff there, and just uh, lots of little nuggets all over the place today. And if you guys are enjoying this podcast and you want more podcasts like it, more episodes just like this one, please do share this podcast with everyone you know in this industry who's aspiring to be great, who wants to be influenced by other great restaurant owners like it's that simple guys like the power of just that constant influence from all these incredible minds will change you over time you will become the average of the five people you spend most of your time with and you can sit down and choose to spend your time with these incredible restaurant tours that i'm putting in front of you uh so share this podcast with anybody that can benefit from that shoot me an email eric at restaurantunstoppable.com social media eric Cacciatore. that's E-R-I-C-C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E in Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help so much. They help validate what I'm trying to do here. And um, special shout-out to my boy, Jared, responsible for the editing and promotion. Man, so grateful to have you on the team, Jared. And uh, I guess that's it for today. Thank you guys all so much for sticking around this long. I love you all, and until next time, peace out.